Good morning. If you would turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. I want to thank you all for the massive support that we received from our church family. I have heard even this week of a pastor who who said that when he lost his mother, he did not feel loved by his church. That was the opposite of our experience. We thank you for your calls, your text, your emails, your cards, social media posts, and it was a real comfort and encouragement in the midst of the grief. And we love you. And we thank you, and we thank the Lord for, for you. We, we need the church, and these are times we're reminded of that in those dark seasons. And we're in a dark season. The grief is deep. I'm not going to kid you there. It's a deep, deep grief. Uh, but God has comforted us. As Paul said, he, he was comforted by the sending of Titus, And the Lord comforted me by the sending of Fisherville Baptist Church to me and to my family. One of the great comforts has been a catechism question from centuries earlier. Baptist Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, both both of them have this question. It's how that shows you how important it is. What happened to the souls of believers at their death? That's a question I often consider at funerals to comfort the grieving, believing family. And the answer to that question, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, do immediately pass into glory. There's no soul sleep. They immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, still united to Christ, rest in the grave until the resurrection. And I have found great comfort in that beautiful and glorious truth. Doctrine matters. Theology matters, and that doctrinal truth has comforted me deeply these last weeks. Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians 3, we will pick up in verse 6 for context, but we're looking at 7 to 13. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jesus is the heir, and so we, we become heirs by being united to Christ, right? Of this gospel, Paul writes, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. It was hidden. Who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose 
that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, that is, in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access. Isn't that beautiful? Access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart. Again, he's writing to encourage them. Over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, there are some magnificent truths in this passage that the people of God at Fisherville need to hear this morning. But we are dependent on your spirit to grant us illumination. Our eyes are naturally dim. Our ears don't naturally hear well the word of God. And our minds are distracted by earthly vanities. Give us eyes and ears and minds that are centered on these truths today. For your glory and for our spiritual edification that we might be conformed to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most grateful things that I am from my mother, but just gratitude resounds in my heart towards her was that she instilled in me a love for reading. In fact, I won the fifth grade readathon at Alabama Middle School. 55 books in fifth grade. I won an autographed football of the Alabama National Championship team that year. Great, great gift. Many of my childhood Saturdays were spent going to the op library where it was like an adventure. It was like going to Disney World for me. And on those Saturdays, we didn't go to the library. My mother, who had the gift of giving, would often go to the store and bring home a book. And then all my Christmases, all my birthdays included books as gifts Now, on those occasions, mom would do one of two things. She she would use the promise and fulfill strategy. That is, she would drop hints about the book that she was going to give me. She would say, I bought you a book, and it is going to thrill you. You're going to love this book. And so I would anticipate it coming, but I really still didn't fully understand what it was. That was the promise and fulfill strategy. But she would use another strategy, the hide and reveal strategy. She she would hide the book, and she would surprise me on, on Christmas or on my birthday and even on some Easter's. She'd plan ways in advance to give me the book. But I did not know about that plan 
only until she gave me the book, but not before. Now, analogously, the Bible and the one story, the one narrative, okay, that is centered on the Messiah, the Son of God, this, the Bible has a glorious tension between promise and fulfill and hide and reveal. Concerning the promise and fulfill approach, in the Old Testament, God promised glorious things for the people of God. And Paul, among other writers in the scripture, says these things are now fulfilled in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God, all of them are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. For example, a Messiah who will bear our sins. That was a promise and it's been fulfilled. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. Isaiah 53, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But the scripture also uses not only the, the promise and fulfill, but also the hide and the reveal method. You see, there were truths in the Old Testament that were hidden and are only now revealed. Paul calls those hidden truths a mystery. That's what he is referring to when he uses the language of mystery. So, for example, that tension of promise fulfill, hide and reveal, appears in Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. On the one hand, the Old Testament, for instance, promises that God will extend his blessings to the Gentiles. Genesis 12, 3, and many other texts. Through the seed of Abraham, all the nations, all the nations will be blessed. They will be saved through the seed. That's promise fulfilled. On the other hand, as we saw last week in verse 6, Jews and Gentiles as fellow heirs, fellow heirs, joint heirs, same inheritance rights, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, that's hide and reveal. That is the mystery that has been revealed to the Apostle Paul. So promise fulfill, hide and reveal. We see both of those methods in our passage. Remarkably, this thought came as a part of an, of an inspired rabbit trail. You see, the scripture is fully divine. It is breathed out by God, by his spirit, which ensures that the word of God not just the overarching thoughts and concepts, but the very words and the tenses of the verbs and all of the other uh, singular, plural, everything, the words, the sentences, the concepts, the doctrines, all scripture is God-breathed and therefore comes to us as an inerrant, an infallible, all-sufficient, clear, authoritative, 
and necessary word to us. It's a fully divine document, but it's also a human document. It's written by human authors. And so here we see the humanity of this inerrant text. In Ephesians 3, as Paul goes on this inspired tangent, he had planned to pray. Notice in verse 1, for this reason, and then notice next week we'll see this, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees. So he's, he's about to pray, but then all of a sudden he, he reminds himself that they are struggling. The people of God in Ephesus are struggling. And the reason they're struggling is because, verse 13 tells us, of his suffering. They're concerned that their mentor is suffering, that he's incarcerated. Maybe there's even doubts with some of them. Maybe Paul's not all he claimed to be or all that the other apostles claimed him to be. If he was, why is he in jail? If he's the great missionary, how come he doesn't have freedom to do his mission work? So Paul goes on this digression, an inspired digression. But in this digression, not only we learn precious doctrine, we learn some pastoral instincts. He's writing in this digression to encourage people who are suffering less than he is. Isn't that remarkable? Here's a man in jail. These people aren't in jail. Here's a man who's persecuted. They may have some light persecution going on, but nothing like Paul has experienced. And yet he's ministering to them. That hit home to me these last weeks because I've suffered. I've suffered these last weeks. It's been the hardest time, not just of my ministry, but my life. And when you're suffering like that, it's easy to become selfish. It's easy to become self-absorbed. And here you see the Apostle Paul walking in the power of the Spirit. The grace of God is very evident in his life as he is encouraging people who are suffering less than him. So this text is, verse 13 tells us, about not losing heart. It's about encouragement. Isn't that such a timely text for us today in our time in this culture? And Paul gives them two things from our passage. To consider so that they would not lose heart. And I believe those two things are as applicable today for Fisherville in the 21st century as it, were, it was in 62 or 63 AD to the original audience, the church of Ephesus. First thing we see here to encourage them, he reminds them of the privilege entrusted to him. The privilege entrusted to him. The apostle Paul, notice in verse seven, of this gospel, that is the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, Salvation where we're reconciled to God, but we're also reconciled to each other. That's the power of the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul is saying, yes, I'm behind bars. I'm currently imprisoned, but look at the glorious privilege I have. 
I wouldn't trade freedom for the loss of that, freedom, uh, that privilege. Indeed, and notice in verse 2, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and now in verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Those two verses serve as bookends. So verse 7 is kind of like a transition as he gets into the next part of this passage. Paul says he became a minister. Now that word minister is the Greek word diakonos. What does that sound like? Deacon. Now Paul did not hold to the office of deacon. There is an official office of deacon that the New Testament sanctions. But the word just simply means ministry. Everybody has a different ministry, and his was the apostolic ministry. He was a minister. So he, he describes himself in this way in, in several passages. In fact, he describes his co-laborers in this way. So for instance, Tychicus and Phoebe and Apollos and Timothy and Epaphras are all described as ministers. But let me submit this to you. So are you. If you look over in chapter 4, verse 12... We'll come to this in time. Christ has given the church pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the works of diaconing, de deaconing, the works of ministry. Paul is saying that all ministers are the product of God's grace. It's a gift. And what do we do with gifts? We steward them. If you're a Christian, you're a, you're a deacon, not necessarily in the official office sense. You're a minister. It's a gift of grace. Let us steward this grace. It's not just a gift of grace. It's a gift of power. He transformed your existence to live for the kingdom of Christ rather than the kingdom of self. It's a remarkable text. As Paul writes elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 15, 10 but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's all of grace. And his grace toward me was not in vain. May it be said of every Christian here. His grace towards me was not in vain. I stewarded that grace as a minister of the gospel. And if we could learn from Paul here to see, to behold God's grace and God's power in our lives, even in the most egregious of circumstances, like jail or the death of a loved one, it would free us to actually minister to people like he is ministering to people here and has ministered to countless millions upon millions through the centuries. This was no cliche for the Apostle Paul. Everything about his stewardship was sovereign grace. It was grace. It was the working of God's power. And that's why in verses 8 to 9, he continues to expand on his sense of awe, he's in awe for the commission given to him. May we not lose the awe. 
And if we have, may God restore it. Notice in verse 8, it's a remarkable verse. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, Paul is not being disingenuous here. He's the least of all God's people, he says, of all the saints. He has what I believe in view, his violent persecution of Jesus' church from his past pre-converted state. The reason I say that is because in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles. And he tells us why he says that. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And I believe that's why he says that here. Because he persecuted the church of God. At one time, he was, at the instrumental level, the central threat, humanly speaking, to the survival of Christianity in the world. Now we know theologically Jesus is going to build his church and there's no terrorist going to thwart that. But at the instrumental level, he was the biggest threat. As one scholar says, Saul of Tarsus almost strangled Christianity in its crib. So earlier, 1 Corinthians, a decade earlier, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. As he grows in grace, he now says a decade later, I'm the least of the saints. Two or three years later, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. As you grow in grace, you also grow in your recognition of how heinous sin is. But how glorious the grace of God is. And what Paul is saying to whoever may need to hear this today, he's exhibit A. That God can and will save any sinner. You say, you don't know what I've done. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says he's the chief of sinners. He's the least of all God's people. And he said, God save me. In fact, that's why Christ came. He came to save sinners. Just like you and me. No matter what your sins are in the past. No matter what sins you are committing in the present. But contextually, Paul is saying here, don't be disheartened for me. I don't deserve anything but judgment. I don't deserve anything. We hear a lot today about privilege. There's no privilege. We're sinners. We don't deserve anything. Paul says, I didn't deserve anything but judgment. Yet, God has granted me such privilege. Such privilege. And he says, privilege to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why are you feeling sorry for me? Now that word preach is the word euangelizio. What does that sound like? Evangelize. 
It's where we get the word evangelize, which literally means to proclaim, to herald, to announce the good news. What is the good news? The all-sufficient finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus doing, dying, rising, and ruling for our salvation. Jesus living in our place, dying in our place, being raised from the grave in our place, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and ruling by His Spirit for us and our salvation and for the church and the church's purposes in the world. But notice He says here, to proclaim, to proclaim, to preach the good news, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The riches that are freely available to us in Jesus Christ. Now that word riches, it's found five times in Ephesians. All five times are found in chapters one to three. If you look over in chapter one, verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In verse 18, as he's praying, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now here, and then we'll see another instance next week in chapter 3, verse 16. Why would he use the word riches five times in Ephesians 1 to 3? Because as we're going to see in two weeks, Lord willing, he's going to change his trajectory in Ephesians and he's going to go ethics on us. Starting in Ephesians 4, he's going to give us 39 commands. Paul recognizes that, that we, the people of God, have responsibilities as instruments of God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. But he knows that you will not carry out your responsibilities unless your heart has been enthralled by the riches of God's grace. And so he has been laying out these riches to warm your heart. It's the expulsive power of a new affection that prepares our hearts to obey God in light of what he has done for us in his son Jesus. In other words, ethics are a response of gratitude for the riches. Maybe you remember the the 2004 movie, uh, National Treasure. It's based on loosely on the myth of a secret code inscribed on the back of the Declaration of Independence by its signers. And the deciphering of this code would lead the treasure hunter in the movie, Ben Gates, and others to the discovery of treasures that had been protected and passed down for centuries. But here's my point. Films like National Treasure are popular because we resonate with them. They connect us with the treasure hunter inside of us all. We are hardwired to be treasure hunters. We are hardwired for treasure. 
And Paul says the only treasure that would ever satisfy your heart cannot be seen. It cannot be touched. They are, to repeat what he says in chapter 1, verse 3, spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Wednesday, we, we had the funeral on Monday. I've always told my students the hardest preaching assignment is preaching seminary chapel. I was wrong. Preaching your mother's funeral is the hardest preaching assignment. But Wednesday, we went out to the cemetery to see her grave. That's sobering. Freshly dug grave, especially of a loved one. Drives home to everyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see that the only riches worth pursuing are eternal in Jesus Christ. My mother accrued beautiful clothes and jewelry. None of, none of that's wrong as long as that doesn't have a hold on your heart. She accrued all those things, but she left them here. The only thing that matters now are the riches that she had in Jesus Christ. All the riches outside of that will be left here to be given away or to be eaten by moths or to rust and rot. They're ephemeral. The riches that are enduring, the riches that will actually fill your heart with contentment and joy cannot in this present age be seen or physically touched. No wonder Paul terms Christ's riches as unsearchable. I love that. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Literally that word means to be not tracked out. If they're to be seen, they have to be revealed. They have to be revealed by God himself. And guess what? He has. He has revealed them through his apostles. That's exactly Paul's point in verse 9. Notice he says, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 8, and to bring to light, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now he's going to change the word from euangelizo to the word photizo, to enlighten. It's where we get the word photograph. I worked in a Photoshop back in the Stone Ages. And that darkened film needs to be enlightened, right? It, it needs, to, and, and, and that's where we get this word, photizo, to enlighten, to bring to light. He's already prayed that prayer in Ephesians 1.18. He, he prayed that the believers, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. But the Lord uses means, right? And so the means he uses primarily and centrally to enlighten our eyes to the gospel riches is 
the Word of God, the apostolic writing here. And so the thoughts here in verse 9 shift from the content of the message, that's verse 8, the good news of the riches in Christ Jesus, to the condition of those who need to hear it. Why do we need to be enlightened? Why do we need these things brought to light? Because our minds and our eyes, our ears are spiritually darkened, naturally speaking. They need to be enlightened. In fact, Jesus had commissioned Paul initially, Acts 26, to this very calling. Acts 26, 11, he was sending him to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to open their eyes. Now, that's the instrumental level. It is God the Spirit who opens our eyes, but he uses the Word of God to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. Paul never forgot that. That was his calling. And that's why he would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, but God who said light shall shine out of darkness. By the way, that's the first act after he created in Genesis 1 to bring light out of darkness. He said, but God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He enlightens our spiritual eyes by allowing us to behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember in our evangelism, and every Christian here is an evangelist. Not every Christian here has the spiritual gift of evangelism. But you're called to evangelize. Wherever God has placed you, that's your mission field. If you're a pilot, it's up there with other pilots, right? If you are a school teacher, it's in the school. If you're a stay-at-home mom, it's your children. Glorious calling. Wherever God has called you is your mission field. And in our evangelism, we need to remember that there is a prince of darkness. He's not a myth. He's a real being. And he is wicked to the core. And this prince of darkness holds humanity in darkness. And it's only by God's divine enlightenment that their eyes will be open to see. And the only light we have, the only light we need is the gospel word. Amen? A gospel that the Old Testament prophets... The Old Testament people of God long to understand more of in its fulfillment, but now only entrusted to the apostles. In other words, again, let's go back to the context. Paul is saying, not only did I have the privilege to preach the unsearchable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ, I had a privilege that Moses didn't have. Noah didn't have, David didn't have, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Zechariah, Nahum, Obadiah, Habakkuk. They didn't have, not even John the Baptist had this privilege to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
He's saying, don't lose heart over me. I would be jailed a million times to have this privilege. And as he preached the unsearchable riches of our Lord Jesus Christ, those whose eyes were enlightened repented and believed and were reconciled to God through the Son of God. And as a result, they were united with Christ. And again, verse 6, they became fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. And God's plan in Jesus Christ, achieved in Jesus Christ, but instrumentalized and communicated by the apostles is the plan of the ages. We don't need another plan B. It's the plan. And so as, as we're looking at our culture, and I'm like you, I don't like what I see. That's why we have to open up the book and be reminded there is a plan that's undergoing that cannot be thwarted, all right? And it's centered on Jesus, and it's instrumentalized by the apostolic writing. I read this week that when Winston Churchill was, was preparing for his famous, it was a very famous speech he gave after the Battle of Britain in 1940, he initially wrote in that speech this line, never in human history. It's a very famous line in this famous speech. If you've ever watched any kind of Winston Churchill movie or read anything about him, you, you know about this. Never in human history has so much been owed by so many to so few. He's practicing that in his limousine as he's making his way back to Parliament, and one of his friends hears him practicing that, and he corrects him. He said, how about Jesus and the apostles? Churchill heard him and said, okay. He changed the line to restrict it to human conflict rather than human history. Never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Because Churchill recognized by his friend's correction that never in human history, never has so much been owed by so many to, to so few. As centrally Jesus Christ and his apostles like Paul. The reason he's suffering, in fact, the reason suffering came with this privilege, the reason suffering can't, comes with our privilege, is because this world and the prince of this world are opposed to that message, isn't it? aren't they? And that's why Paul includes this line, don't, don't overlook this, God created all things. He just threw it in there. To bring to life for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? It almost seems out of place. Why is he all of, all of a sudden taking us back to Genesis 1 to remind us that God created all things? Well, he's reminding us that God created all things, and when God does something, he has a purpose. And God's purpose is always fulfilled. All right? That's one reason he would say that, but as well... The mere mention of creation takes us back to when 
everything was good. Everything was good. God created everything good, but now it has been marred, distorted, and depraved by sin. And so the fact that God created all things reminds us that he had a purpose for creation. And even though creation went sideways due to sin, a plan of heightened restoration is underway. It's very comforting. A plan of heightened restoration, better than the original creation, is in place. And that plan is achieved and centered upon the Son of God and, by extension, His church. That brings us to the last part of this passage, a plan entrusted to the church. A privilege entrusted to Paul, but there's been a plan entrusted to the church. Notice, so that through the church, as we read this, I want you to consider... I believe this with all my heart. This is the most important verse in the scripture on the importance of the church. There's, I, I just can't even imagine or remember or think of any verse more important. And you say, well, this is talking about the universal church. Well, let me just tell you something. The universal church is not the emphasis of the New Testament. The, the local church is. And the universal church is going to be expressed locally. He says, so that through the church, this is our purpose. This is our highest purpose, right? It's, it's not to get your consumer needs met. That's very Western, very 20th and 21st century. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So the Lord is the ultimate agent who makes the mystery known. We know that. He's a revealing God. Thank God for that. He's a revealing God. But the instrumental agent is the church. But to who? Who is the church revealing the manifold wisdom of God to? Well, Paul tells us to the rulers and the authorities. In the heavenly places. Now, if you look over in chapter 6, verse 12, we see who they are. Put on the whole armor of God, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. If you look back in chapter 1, Christ has emerged victorious. Over these realities, far above all rule and authority, verse 21, and power and dominion. So I believe this is referring to primarily the devil and his fallen angels. But I would also venture to say that it extends beyond that to earthly powers that are empowered and are in league with the devil. Governmental powers, any other powers that you may consider or even feel threatened by, they're defeated. And, and, and the purpose of the church is to be a tangible reminder of their defeat. The church provides the devil and his fallen angels and, and all earthly powers 
in league with the devil, unwittingly, oftentimes. A tangible reminder. Now, you need to believe this. The church reminds these powers, gives them a tangible reminder that their authority has been decisively broken. No matter what you see. And that all things are subject to Jesus Christ. The powers cannot hinder the advance of the gospel. Be encouraged by that. Maybe we need to turn off the news and open up the the scriptures. The news comes from a biased, most of the time naturalistic perspective. You're not going to read Ephesians 3.10. You're not going to hear about it on any news channel. The angels are to look at the church with all of our issues. And we've got them, don't we? And they're to say, how did God do that? How did he take these rebellious, sinful, self-centered to the core people who are so prone to divisiveness and unify them as one body. The wisdom of God is astounding. Paul saying to the church, Satan, remember when you told Job God wasn't worth living for? Well, Let me show you a whole host of Job's from every tribe and tongue, every nation who are now reconciled as one body. God indeed is infinitely wise. Again, Paul is saying, don't be discouraged by my chains. I was privileged with this role to preach to you how glorious your purpose is as the church, as the people of God. Because of Paul's sufferings, think about this. Because of Saul, uh, Paul's imprisonment, we know things Moses didn't know. Certainly not in contradiction to Moses. Organically related to what Moses knew. Acorn to an oak tree, right? We know things Isaiah didn't know. We know things Jeremiah didn't know. And it's through this church, this wisdom is made known. And get this. It's been God's plan from all eternity. The church is not a parenthesis. It is God's plan. Verse 11 He says, this was according to the eternal purpose. You can't get any stronger than that. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I've thought about this this week because I, in my grief, and I know many of you are grieving for various things. Others have lost loved ones. Trudy Camber lost her mother this week. To know God has an eternal plan, all right? 
That's verse 11. That is sovereign. That's Ephesians 1.11. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So it's eternal and it's sovereign. And verse 10 tells us it's wise. How comforting is that? It's sovereign, it's eternal, and it's a wise plan. You, God, Paul covers all the bases there. To know that God's plan is eternal, sovereign, and wise is deeply comforting and should be deeply encouraging for every believer. A purpose centered on the Son of God. God is Christocentric. And whatever glorifies God in his son also benefits his people. Look in verse 12. He says, in whom we have boldness. It's in Christ. Outside of Christ, you don't have boldness to approach God. That would be the height of foolishness. It would be the height of foolishness to try to come into the presence of a holy God without having your sins atoned for. But in Christ... We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is extraordinarily comforting. He's already said that in chapter 2, verse 18. Through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Think of this, the great comfort that would have been for the Apostle Paul. And for every believer living in a broken world, that covers us all, right? Paul is behind bars, and yet he declares he has boldness and access to the one who's really in control. And then he closes with verse 13 again. So I ask you, here's why. I've given you reason not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. That is which is for your, your salvation. It's for your growth in grace. It's for your conformity to Christ. It's for your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had been imprisoned at this point up to three years. Now, I was in quarantine in Monday, Texas for a week, six days. And I was pulling my hair out. Paul had been imprisoned, imprisoned for up to three years at this point. It would have been very easy for his disciples to have been disheartened. But things aren't what they seem. Things are not what they seem. I, again, let me emphasize this to you. The beast then seemed victorious. The beast today seems victorious but the Lord has actually turned him and his plan on its head supremely look at the resurrection the beast appeared victorious the Messiah the one who claimed to be Messiah was in a borrowed tomb the resurrection turned the beast and his plan on its head his head was crushed through this apparent defeat of the Messiah. Look at the prison epistles. We would not have the prison epistles if Paul had not been unjustly imprisoned. 
The beast appears victorious, and God turns him and his plan on its head. Look at the church. In spite of our frailties, in in spite of our carnality, oftentimes spiritual leaders who are committing sexual immorality and all kinds of chaotic nonsense, 2,000 years later stands the church. The beast appears victorious. but God is turning his plans on his head. Paul is teaching us we do not judge, we do not assess things by the natural eye. The mystery revealed in Jesus Christ is that with the reconciliation of God's people to God and with each other, Jews and Gentiles, in the new creation body of Christ, the process by which God is summing up all things in Jesus Christ is well underway. And the very existence of the church is a reminder that the authority of the powers have been broken. They've been broken. And their final defeat is imminent. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. It's the only truth we hear all week. Everything else is tainted with misinformation, lies, untruths, partial truths, biased perspectives, finite perspectives. But here in the word of God lies the mind of Christ and the plan of the ages. A plan centered, a foolproof plan centered on the son of God. May we be as centered on the son of God as your plan is. And we pray that if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, oh, Lord God, we pray today they would flee to Christ and find refuge from the wrath that is going to fall when all things are set right. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we close today, and we'll probably look at this benediction again next week, but what better benediction... Then Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Let's recite the word of God, this hopeful word, together as we close. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.